brace yourself, get your head around it. Many people are probably in worse shape than you. And, and realize that you are mobilizing um, for action, that what we're doing is not passive or hiding, that this is actually as aggressive as, as storming Normandy. And I, I, I want people to know that they're part of the mobilization. Harvard professor Juliet Kayyem was President Obama's Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Kayyem is a regular contributor to CNN as a security analyst and she writes a weekly column for The Atlantic. Now, in discussion with Paloma Strelitz and Judd Olenoff, she explains crisis management in the time of a 50-state pandemic. This is The Dive. We bring Harvard faculty to you for conversations on the most pressing issues in the news. Julius, it's great to have you join us today. Thank you. Over the last few weeks, you've been busy educating the public, both on CNN and The Atlantic, about the crisis. How's that been going and how have you been adjusting to life on Zoom? I know, it's such a good question. It's so weird because the um, um, I've been on TV a lot. I've had a contract with CNN before. The Atlantic had approached me about doing a column through, uh, once a week through this, which has actually been good. I, I my Twitter following is pretty big, and I, but you know, I'm alone. I mean, I'm I'm also isolating. So it's like this weird phenomenon where, you know, I've got my I'm turning right now, but I've got my CNN sent some fancy stuff um, for better lighting <laughs> and and. Uh, um, so you you don't experience um, it except for in sort of I think the interactions or the nice emails that I get or friends saying you know that you know we wait breathlessly for what you're going to say and stuff. So I I have this you know role as being both honest about how bad it is, but also um, I think comforting is the right word because I'm very optimistic. There's a plan forward, and 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 we'll get there. We're not going to get there prettily, and I'm quite critical of the White House's stance. Or the White mm. House's lack of um, of um, of uh, ownership. Yeah, um, and yeah. I feel like you've you've responded to and studied so many national crises, like nine yeah. eleven, Katrina, the BP oil spill, the Boston Marathon bombing, and we're still in the middle of COVID nineteen. Yeah, but could you describe how this is unique and what you think its place will be in American history? It's, it's unique in the sense that it's just so new the the end is not tomorrow um it's unique in the sense i mean really i mean social distancing is just buying us time um but even after we get over the curve as we're seeing in asia and elsewhere you know we're, we're going to be like this for 18 months i mean i just think people not like this not inside but just a very different way of living a, a minister friend of mine who um, uh, calls it the now normal. We got to get the new normal out of our head because that's just like a future place, right? So you just have mm. to think of this as the now normal, which is helpful intellectually. But I think from a Homeland Security front, the most um, significant thing is that this is a 50 state disaster of which all 50 states are um, what we call, you know, like operationalized or, you know, are, are actually active. So we've had disasters, Hurricane Katrina, obviously 9-11, that the entire country feels and some of it mobilizes for. 
but um, we don't have, we've never had something in which your, your states are vying for limited mm. resources, looking to the federal government for uh, satisfying the supply chain problem. Um, that is going to be an execution challenge. So what I often say is I think the plan is very sound. I mean, the plan in the sense we'd want national guidance on shelter in place or social distancing um, to get over the curve, surge resources to hospitals, um, uh, get focused on testing capacity. And then on the other side, based on metrics, you know, everyone, you know, based on, you know, do we have testing kits or ICU beds available, all the metrics that people like me mm. look at, then begin to think about what it's like to manage, not eliminate, but to manage living with the virus. That's going to be very hard and long-term as well. We're going to begin here with the outbreak of a mystery virus in China that now has the World Health Organization on edge. And story today. The CDC says Americans should begin preparing for a likely coronavirus pandemic now. The agency says an outbreak in the U.S. is inevitable and the disruption to everyday life may be severe. If we could rewind to December when the virus first appeared and, and imagine how our system is supposed to work. Right. To prepare for a pandemic, who's responsible for what among federal, state and local officials? Okay, so there's always, like, every disaster has the same beat, right? So it's, it's locally executed, state-coordinated, federally supported. Um, and so, and so this, this would be no different, right? It's just that um, the, the local execution is, was very dependent on federal transparency. So I think that when you end federal um, preparedness. So I think that when you look back to what we call the squandered months, January and February, of which if you look at my Twitter feed, I was almost not, and I'm not a genius. What I'm saying is there were a lot of people of which my Twitter feed was almost exclusively on the coronavirus by mid-January. I mean, I, you know, you forget the impeachment, forget everything. It was, this thing is coming and you couldn't see any, I mean, you actually saw the worst. You saw a president minimized the harm, which I think is worse than ignoring it, like 9-11 and what George Bush is accused of, um, and no preparation. So what happened was then the locals all of a sudden are faced with the acknowledgement of mass community spread because there's been no testing, and then they have to shut down. They still need the federal support. So this is more like a war effort than I think a traditional, like what, what you studied in my class, like a traditional disaster. Um, and we need to surge resources. There's, this cannot be done without local execution. I mean, without national execution. Um, and, and, and I'm not, look, what, you know, that, that cities and states are getting ahead of the federal government is great, and it's not nothing. I mean, the fact that Arizona, like Ducey, like if you know the politics of Arizona, like not, you know, he's a very conservative um, uh, Trump supporter, um, that that uh, that he is more aggressive than the White House just shows, you know, that the White House is just very far behind. So at the federal, state and local levels, what way did you not think that we fulfilled this ideal plan um, for a pandemic scenario? <coughs> so the, there is a pandemic scenario. It was thrown out by the genius of Jared Kushner and others, you know, based on some thought that, well, what we're facing is so different. Of course, what we're facing is so different. That's why you have a plan, right? I mean, in other words, you anticipate the unexpected, right? So the plan was very clear that the federal government would begin to mobilize as the virus, whatever virus it is, just call it virus X, was coming 
whether it was from Mexico or Asia or wherever, would mobilize and would educate state and local. So one perfect example is this. Louisiana is in big, big trouble. New Orleans mm -hmm. is really stretched. And the reason why is because they decided to have Mardi Gras the, um, a couple weeks ago. The mayor says, I was never told not to. I mean, in other words, we think that everyone knows everything. It's not true. So a mayor is not told, right? So, so that's the kind of thing where the federal government would have been out in January saying, we're going to start social distancing you know, over time. And then at some stage, you just shut the lights, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in some stages, we're at a national plan. Here are the latest numbers as we come on the air. The U.S. is now leading the world in the number of confirmed coronavirus cases, according to Johns Hopkins University. New York's governor says FEMA gave the state 400 ventilators. To that, he said this. What am I going to do with 400 ventilators when I need 30,000? You pick the 26,000 people who are going to die because you only sent 400 ventilators. So there have been supply shortages across the country. Yeah. Uh, let's take New York City as an example. So Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio have asked the president for tens of thousands of ventilators. Could you explain the federal stockpile and how yeah. states get supplies from the yeah. federal government? Right, right. There's several means by which um, a state would be able to get more supply. So in a traditional disaster, it would generally be from another state. We don't have under a mutual aid agreement. So think about California wildfires. They run out of assets. They're pulled from Massachusetts under a mutual aid agreement. And that's like understood. That's not possible here. So the next, you have to then go up to the federal government. And there's a, a number of different pools that you could think of. The one is the strategic national stockpile, which is a, literally what it says. Um, and it has all sorts of goods and assets that can be deployed. Those decisions ought to be made uh, without put, based on need, but also thinking about the long term um, and also replenishing as you go along. So the federal government's trying to do that. But we are hearing stories that red states are getting more than blue states, which like I can't even get my head around. The second is military assets. But the military, unfortunately, is also challenged by the virus. See, we're all getting impacted by it. So you're seeing real concerns about military readiness. We're hearing about, you know, a single, you know, one Navy ship is having to go offline um, because of the number of um, uh, illnesses. The third, of course, is, um, is uh, the, the Defense Production Act, which a lot of people have heard of. It's a tool that a president has that he can utilize uh, to compel manufacturing um, and to compel um, uh, purchasing uh, that satisfies the supply chain and the need. It is not rocket science. It's been used before. The president is reluctant to utilize it. So you're seeing, you know, what I call the fail-safe system come into place, right? That um, I mean, that's essentially it, right? That, 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 that you, 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 the private sector is just coming forward, right? And, and trying to satisfy it. The beauty of the Defense Production Act is that it sets a market um, at market value so that there's not price gouging, which a lot of the states have worried about as well. And let's say a state explores those options but can't get what it needs from those options you laid out can a state mm -hmm. go try to get supplies on its own is that feasible yes yeah and in fact some of the states are saying look federal government we don't care we're, we're done with you just don't compete with us so like the montana governor sent out a tweet yesterday just saying okay you don't have your act together i have a problem here let me go to my private sector in montana get them to switch, but stop competing with me because the states, one state can't compete with the federal government. So it's a real nightmare.
I mean, for the states. Plus, the, the, the peak is not going to hit simultaneously. That's a blessing and a curse, right? The curse is we're all going to be inside a long time. The blessing is maybe we can move assets, respirators you can reuse, things like that. So you reference the Defence Production Act, but are there other emergency powers that the federal government has not used that it should? That's the greatest one that, that they ought to use, right, is, is that one, because that's what the federal government is needed for. It's needed to, to get the test kits on the front end and um, assets on the other. You know, obviously personnel and other issues are important, but if that's the, that is the main tool that the federal government has in a 50-state dis- disaster. Florida, Nevada, and Pennsylvania have now joined 35 other states issuing stay-at-home orders. Are you considering it all a nationwide stay-at-home order? I know there's a lot of states that have put them in place, but some haven't. I'm just wondering if you were considering some sort of broad stay-at-home order. And then I have a question for Dr. Burks, too, if you don't mind. Well, we've uh, talked about it. We, uh, you know, there obviously there are some parts of of the country that are in far deeper trouble than others. Thirty-eight states have issued stay-at-home orders, and some did that just in the last couple of days. That still leaves 12 states that have not ordered people to stay home. On the national level, the president has urged but not ordered people to stay home. Do we need either a stay-at-home order nationally or for all 50 states to order people to stay home? So what's happening, what's really interesting is, you know, the president gets all this play for extending it. Um, past April and, uh, you know, these guidelines, they're only guidelines. So states are able to get out of it. And so that's basically what you're seeing. But what you've seen, two things occur. One is the states are getting ahead of the White House and so are cities. So you have this interesting dynamic in Florida where DeSantos is behind the major cities in Florida. And then also you are starting to see members of the White House say, you know what, don't treat these as guidelines. These are, these are real. So these are the these essentially mandates, I guess I should say. So the president first floated and then rejected the idea of actually locking down areas of the country so people wouldn't be able to leave. Would that be legally enforceable? It'd be very hard. Uh, there are some laws. I mean, first of all, it would be so heavily litigated, but there are some laws that allow for quarantines. But remember, quarantine is meant to keep people who are unhealthy away from people that are healthy. So we just, so it's inconsistent with the notion that we have vast uh, community spread. So, and then second, you know, I think about in terms of execution, right? In terms of resources. If you're telling me that you want to use the military to quarantine three states where I've got vast community spread throughout the United States, that is Uh, That seems to me like a bad source of resources and is once again sort of blaming, you know, blaming states rather than working cooperatively with them. After working on a COVID-19 vaccine since January, the company has now identified a so-called lead candidate. This would be a treatment with enough potential to warrant clinical trials. Now, J&J expects to launch phase one clinical trials by September of this year at the latest with the first batch available for emergency use by early 2021. Let's talk about the path forward from here. So it it could be something like 18 months before the virus could be kept at bay by a vaccine and immunity, for example. 
but there's talk about letting people get back to their lives in the meantime, in the next few months. Could that work if there are enough tests and enough equipment in the meantime to absorb the new cases and not overwhelm the hospital system? There are. I mean, I think we're starting to see evidence that the flattening of the curve does work. And that's great. And so, but I mean, but it has to be consistent. So the New York Times has a story today about Asian countries that may be opening up too soon. So we really do have to think about what I'm calling, well, there's a couple analogies. One is good and one is bad. So if you think that the social distancing shock, right, we all were shocked two weeks ago, is like a light switch, the, the, the remedy and the mitigation side is gonna be more like a dimmer. It's gonna be a variety of tools that we have, you know, testing, isolation, you know, test and track, um, shaming. There's gonna be a shaming aspect to this, right? You, if you have a fever, you're not allowed to go outside, all that stuff, right? It also will mean restaurants will be different, you know, maybe half the number of seats, everything will be different. There's, the, 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 as I said, the new normal is not, it's not gonna feel normal. Like, get that out of your head. We're in the now normal, like this is, but, um, and then you're going to have treatments. So, so, so you're going to have testing and then treatments, right? So if someone does get sick, they're not on a respirator immediately. And then you're ultimately going to have the vaccine. So one way to think about it is a dimmer. The other way to think about it is whack-a-mole, right? Right. Like, and, it's like, it's like, oh my God, we have an outbreak here. Shut down that school district, right? Right, right. Yeah. To frame the scope of this crisis in terms of numbers, the White House said there could be 100,000 to 200,000 U.S. deaths, and that's with stay-at-home orders. Other studies, which assume little or no mitigation effort, project something like half the U.S. getting the virus and potentially over a million deaths. Is it fair to say that that model may be too pessimistic, but the White House model may be aspirational with the reality somewhere between the two? So I think um, both are the extreme. So I have a number in my head and that number is based and I don't, I mean, I said it yesterday on Twitter and I should probably shouldn't have, but like I, um, and the reason why is the 100 to 200,000 is based on strong mitigation measures and a, a national plan. On the other side is 1.2 to 2 million, which was nothing happens, that this thing just plows through the United States with a certain death rate and an incapacity to deal with it. I think it's somewhere in between. I mean, I guess I can say it because I tweet. I think it's going to be closer to 400,000. But I don't know because lots of good things can happen. Lots of good things can happen. And you're seeing this, like what I call the fail-safe system, come into play, that it is um, moving um, forward um, and uh, trying to fill the gaps of national leadership. And so in what ways do you think that COVID-19 is going to change the United States forever? Oh, it's so hard to tell. You know, some people look at it as the new federalism and optimistically about health care, uh, you know, and changes the way we live and, 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 and the gig economy. Um, I um, also think that the opposite could be very likely, that we become more stratified, we become more dependent on centralized government, we have a role of the military in our, in our, in our nation that we had not envisioned before. So all of, so I don't know, I don't know. You know, I know, um, you know, I know plans and execution and risk reduction, and I know resiliency. Um, but I don't know, you know what this leads to. Um, and I think that what the plans did not factor in is such, just such limited 
incapable leadership at the top. I mean, even yesterday, as we're talking yesterday, Trump sort of gave a dire assessment and lots of media reporters were like, oh, he was so somber. And first of all, I don't believe that he'll hold on to that. But I just thought it was interesting. Here we are with a global pandemic with the potential 200,000 Americans die. And it's still about him. And he still says, I. Like, it just, you, you could not imagine that with any other leader, right? You don't, I mean, when did Churchill like ever say I, right? When did FDR ever say I? <laughs> He talked about we and a common mission. And, you know, and Churchill, you know, Churchill never talked about a win. He always talked about never surrendering. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it, that you, you can't be Pollyannish. You have to be honest with people. Speaking of leadership, you're an expert on how to lead and how to communicate in a crisis. And it seems that we're entering the worst of this crisis. If you were the president or a governor, what would you say to the American people now? I would say, uh, brace yourself, get your head around it. Many people are probably in worse shape than you. And, and realize that you are mobilizing um, for action, that what we're doing is not passive or hiding, that this is actually as aggressive as, as stormy Normandy. And I, I, I want people to know that they're part of the mobilization and maybe that gives them some sense of purpose when this is really hard. I guess the other thing I'd say is give yourself a freaking break. Like this is hard. You know, I'm, I have this role as like, you know, consoler and, you know, trying to get people to, to, to think rationally. I mean, I have my moments. I have my moments. I, 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 you know, I tell everyone that they have to get a battle rhythm. I mean, I, you know, I had a day last week where I literally was in sweatpants, like eating cake batter out of a bowl. Like, you know, like we have it. And I think, you know, all this talk of betterment and, you know, I'm going to learn the violin and German and all, you know what, like maybe all you want to do is like, you know, give yourself a Manny and that's fine. You know, I'm, so I'm definitely like mobilize and give yourself a break, right? Because this is really hard. We live in a country where power sits with states and localities and individual freedoms are guaranteed. Is this country less able to manage pandemics and less democratic systems? Um, I think, no. I mean, I think, um, I think this administration is. I mean, if you look, look, the fact I'm looking to Boris Johnson, where are you from? I'm from London. Yeah, so with the fact I'm looking to Boris Johnson as my <laughs> leadership model, Boris Johnson, four-minute speech. Of course, he was late, lots done wrong. Four-minute speech, mobilize, stay inside. I'm not messing around, you know basically screw you, right? Like, uh, this is serious. No whining, no whatever. Everyone's inside. Three weeks later, they're going to get over the curve. This piecemeal craziness is, is like, you know, I do get frustrated. It's like, I've been inside almost three weeks now. Like, where the hell is Alabama? Like, but it does look like the White House is changing its tune um, and it's getting to guidelines, um, is, is moving the guidelines to an order. Great. Well, Julia Kayyem, thank you so much for making time to join us. Um, uh, and, and more importantly, thank you for your honest and, um, and Tough practical love. and reassuring advice <laughs> to the whole country through the crisis. People appreciate it. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much, you guys. Stay safe. Give yourself you a break. Too. Thanks And again. we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Talk Bye. to you guys later. Thanks for joining us on The Dive. This episode was produced by Paloma Strelitz, Judd Olenoff, and Zoya Soroy. 
If you found this discussion interesting and informative, please share on social media. We're busy working to produce more stories on global issues that matter to you and always happy to receive any suggestions. Just write to ideas at thedive.media.